0: listening to an audio sermon from Harvest Bible Chapel, Kelowna. For more information about our church, please visit harvestkelowna.ca. You can turn in your Bibles to Exodus 19, and right now the ushers are coming forward and they have Bibles. If you don't have a Bible here this morning, would like to borrow one, or if you would like to take it home, you're more than welcome to take the Bible home with you as well as our gift to you as um, we will be looking at Exodus 19 and also you can look at Deuteronomy chapter 6. You can kind of put your connection card or put something in there or the envelope that's in the little uh, rack there. You put, put uh, one in Exodus 20 and then have your Bibles open to Deuteronomy 6. We'll be looking at that in just a moment. and, and uh, We're beginning a new series today. And it is a series on the Ten Commandments. And over the next few months, it's going to take us with a few little breaks here and there. We are going to work through these Ten Commandments that we find in Exodus chapter 20. And when you hear of the word, the Ten Commandments, you might have a number of different thoughts that will come to mind when you, when you hear... Um, the Ten Commandments. Maybe you go back to your Sunday school days and you think of that teacher with the flannel graph board that you know had had those little images of, of Moses and and uh, just some of the elements that went along with that. Or, or perhaps um, you memorize them at, at some point. Have any of you ever memorized at one point in your life the Ten Commandments? Okay, a number of hands have gone up. Yeah, maybe. And I wonder if you still know the Ten Commandments. If you still have them in memory, that'd be great if you do. Maybe you think of the movie The Ten Commandments with Charleston Heston. And, and I even heard one guy even said, I think he was telling the truth, he watched it last night just to get prepared for, for this message series, you know. And, and Charlton Heston in, in that rugged, you know, and, uh, and kind of look to him and all of that. He, he, he has uh, those Ten Commandments, let my people go and and, or, or maybe when you think of the Ten Commandments, you think of how Canada, as a nation, the Fathers of Confederation founded our nation based on the laws and or based the laws of our land, were on the moral code that we see in these Ten Commandments. And maybe now we look and we say, "Wow, has our nation ever?" As we've gotten away from the truth of God's word, as we've gotten away from. The Ten Commandments, we see how our nation is drifting further and further into moral relativism, which basically means whatever you think is right in your eyes, you just go ahead and do it. It's okay, who am I to judge you? You just do what you want to do. And we have taken the standard of God's Word and and the Ten Commandments in which our nation has been founded upon, and we've diluted them. Or maybe we think the Ten Commandments are... Aren't they a little old-fashioned? Are they even really relevant still today? Like, I'm not so sure about this. And, and uh, you know, like, isn't that so Old Testament, you know, and, and kind of old-fashioned or out-of-date? And, and are they still even really relevant today? Like, should we be, you know what, paying attention to these commandments? Folks, I want you to know that the Ten Commandments are very relevant today because God spoke. Because these are the words of God. And they show us, they reveal to us, we get the more completed picture than what they had here in the book of Exodus. But what they do is they show us the heart of God. They show us the love of God. They show us the power of God. and, and, And what we see here is we see the law of God and we see the grace of God. And they are really not opposed even though they're on opposite ends. They're not opposed. They actually fit together hand in glove. They line up very, very precisely and very beautifully. When you end up breaking down the Ten Commandments, and, and we just kind of have a, a quick list of the ten of them there, the, the, they kind of break down into the first four have to do with God. You might even want write to write that down. And write down some of these notes as we're going through them here today because it may help you to kind of get an understanding of, of what's going on here. And so one to four have to deal with God. And so, they're very, very much about the love of God. It's about our vertical relationship that we as humans have with the God of this universe. And so, the first four deal with that. Then, the last six deal with our love for others. So, on one side, we have the first four, our love for God. The second part, our love for others. The first half, are or the first part, they're the vertical relationship. They're very doctrinal in nature, But the last six are horizontal. They're about our relationships with others. So one is vertical, the other is horizontal. And there's an order to it. They go in an order. You don't start at the bottom that you shall not covet, and and you slowly build up to have no other gods before me. It is starting with the top one, with the first one, and you work your way down from there. And So that's what we're going to be doing together. And what we will see is that the love for God produces a love for others. That we can properly and truly love people, love others, love our spouse, love family members, even love that irritating pe- person in our life, truly and more powerfully, if we have a right understanding of a love for God. And so if our love for God is, is in right order and is progressing well, our love for people will happen. And again, you see the progression that ends up taking place here. And really, in, in reality, the Ten Commandments, in a sense, they're the Cold's Notes version of the law of God. They are a summary of the law of God, and it defines how people are to live and how they can have a meaningful relationship with God. With God and with others. And just to give you a little recap, just give you a little bit of kind of Bible lesson here, just again, bring you up to speed. The first five books of the Bible Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy are known as the Pentateuch, the five books, or the Torah, which also means the law. And the first five books, I haven't done the research. I'm thankful somebody else did that for me, and I was able to read about this research and have it verified by a number of sources, that there are 613 laws in those first five books of the Bible, all right? And so you have these 613 different laws and, and kind of stipulations that have been given to, to God's people, to the Israelites and the Ten Commandments kind of show up. They are, they are a summary. They're kind of at the center, the heart of the law of God. And then if you want even a shorter version of, what it, of a summary of it, we go to Matthew chapter 22, verse 37. And here we have Jesus gives a summary of the law. Listen to this. Matthew twenty-two thirty-seven. 37. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment, and the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. So we see again, what is it, the first half of those? Love for God, love for people. And God, says, God, God gives this to us in the Old Testament, and Jesus comes along in the New Testament here, and he just reaffirms. The Ten Commandments starts with a love for God and a love for others. And as we dig deeper into the law of God, it will help us to understand the heart of God. And we will see how God is so crazy for you. He's not crazy. He is crazy for you. He has a crazy love and a pursuit of you to be in a close, meaningful, dynamic relationship with Him. That is his desire for us as his children. Not to just be somewhere far off, feeling like a loser in life, but to know God's power in his presence in and through our lives. Now let's just do a little further recap here in the book of Exodus. And so, because we're kind of jumping in at Exodus 19 today, and so I want to kind of bring you up to speed from the book of Exodus. And, And the book of Exodus begins with the Israelites, God's chosen people, they're, they are in Egypt, they've been there for over 400 years, and they've increased in number. You can kind of see at the end of Genesis how they got into Egypt, how God had delivered them, had delivered the family, um, the Israelites from there, and so now over the 400 years they've produced, they've multiplied, and they've become a great family there, the Israelites within the, uh, in the country of Egypt. And the Pharaoh of the day started to feel very threatened. And so they end up being put in as slaves. And so they are are, are treated terribly. They are mistreated. There's misery. They have no hope and no future. And they are calling out to God for deliverance. They are saying, God, help, help, help. And in Exodus chapter 2, we see God raises up Moses to lead his people to the promised land. And so the first 18 chapters, they're just like nonstop action. If you want some good action reading in the Bible, those first 18 chapters, I mean, they're just full of a lot of action and a lot of interesting things, from murder to a burning bush to plagues like giant hailstones and and, and frogs and and locusts. And and then there's this drama between Pharaoh and Moses where Moses is coming before him, let my people go, and, and, and Pharaoh says, okay, I'll let you go, and then JK, you know, just get back here, and, and, he, and he brings him back, and he's like, no, you can't go, and so, you know, there's some, some you know, plagues, you know, another plague that happens, okay, get out of here, get out of here, just kidding, get back here, you know, and and so you have this going back and forth, and finally, there is the death of the firstborn, Pharaoh's firstborn son dies, and now Pharaoh's had it, and he says, get out of here, just go, 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 and so the Israelites' Few million of them, women, children, families, all of their possessions, everything that they can take, they're 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 heading out. And then they come to the Red Sea. I mean, great story about how God parted the Red Sea for them and they crossed on dry land. And just at the tail end, Pharaoh again just changed his mind, comes after him. But the armies of Pharaoh defeated, and they're standing on the other side and they're having a party. They're celebrating, yes, we're free, we've been delivered. This is great news. And now to possess the promised land. The, the land that God had promised for us. And so you have a few million former slaves who have been set free, but they're not living free. They're living in bondage still, even though they are, have been freed from the slavery in Egypt. They're committing adultery, murder, stealing, coveting, This has been a part of their lives, and yet they've been set free from this, and yet they keep, this is still ongoing, worshiping false gods in addition to the real God. Oh, they continue to worship God, but they had a lot of other gods on the side. And yet we see how God is so gracious, how he is so merciful and patient with his people. He rescues them, he delivers them, and as you continue to read, it doesn't take long, and they start to complain about the food that they're eating, they're not liking it very much, and they're already starting to, oh, we had it so much better in Egypt. And I don't know about you, but when your kids start to whine at you, what do you kind of end up doing? Do you let into the whining? No, you want to deal with that, right? It drives you crazy. What does God do? He, he loves his whiners. He loves them. He cares for them. He's brought them out of slavery and he is so patient and he is so kind to them. He is full of love towards his people. But now you come to Exodus 19 and this is where the story gets rather interesting. There's a shift now in the book of Exodus as God prepares to give them the Ten Commandments. And here is what we see about the Ten Commandments. I encourage you to write down these four points that we're going to look at here today. The Ten Commandments reveal how God intended us to live. This is why it's important that we get to know these Ten Commandments and we get to know God's Word is because it is the guidebook to life. And so we see here, they reveal to us how God intended us to live. If you go back to Genesis, the very first book of the Bible, you have Adam and Eve. There they lived in perfect relationship with God. And they had perfect relationship between Adam and Eve had relationship. They had relationship with God. It was perfect. There was peace. There was provision. There was so much for them. And the word to describe what they had was shalom. Which is just the absence of anything that is not peaceful. It, utter shalom and beauty. And, but then as we read, sin enters into the world and everything falls apart. And you just see the tumble that ends up happening. God's laws that he gives to them here this day. Here as we get into Exodus 20 next week. These laws are for the restoration of that relationship. They are about the restoration of of that shalom that God offers to his children. It's not simply about freedom from slavery. But he wants them to know his power and his blessing and his presence in their lives. He wants to be real to them. He wants to be in relationship with them. And folks, nothing has changed. God desires to have a relationship with each one of us. And so in Deuteronomy chapter 6, this is where we're going to begin before we go into Exodus 19. Because we're going to see just the reality of of the law and what it means how it reveals how God intended us to live. We're going to start at verse 20 of Deuteronomy 6 and it says when your son asks you in time in the time to come what is the meaning of the testimonies and the statutes and the rules that the Lord our God has commanded you. So in other words, what's the meaning of the 10 commandments? What's the meaning of all these laws? Then you shall say to your son, we were Pharaoh's slaves in Egypt. And the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand. And the Lord showed signs and wonders and great and grievous against Egypt and against Pharaoh and all his households before our eyes. And he brought us out from there that he might bring us in and give us the land that he swore to give to our fathers. And the Lord commanded us to do all these statutes. To fear the Lord our God, for our good always, that he might preserve us alive as we are to this day. And so we see God's laws are for our good. It's for our blessing. It's for us to have favor with God in relationship with him. And so now in Exodus 19, the Israelites have all gathered together at Mount Sinai. And he gives them this, this law. And he is saying to them, follow these commands. Follow these commandments. He says, not so that I will adopt you as my children. He says, I've already adopted you. You're mine. I love you. And the way that this is going to go well for you is follow my teaching. Follow these truths. Follow these commands. I want you to do these things because they are for your good. And they're for the good of your family. For the good of your marriage. For the good of your community. For the good of the nation. You can't earn God's favor they nothing they weren't going to do this just to get in God's good good books in hopes that they would love him he already loves them and that is why even today we follow in obedience to the word of God not because we have to but because we want to because of the understanding of all that God has done the next thing that we see here the 10 commandments reveal the holiness of God And so now in Exodus chapter 19, starting at verse 10, it says, The Lord said to Moses, Go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow, and let them wash their garments, and be ready for the third day. For on the third day the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai, in the sight of all the people. And you shall set limits for the people all around, "...saying, take care not to go up into the mountain or touch the edge of it. Whoever touches the mountain shall be put to death. No hand shall touch him, but he shall be stoned or shot. Whether beast or man, he shall not live. When the trumpet sounds a long blast, they shall come up to the mountain." So Moses went down from the mountain to the people and consecrated the people. And they washed their garments. And he said to the people, be ready for the third day. Do not not go near a woman. In other words, he's saying don't even have sexual relationship with your wife is what he's talking about here. Do not do anything that could possibly just bring any sort of... um, Sinfulness or or any kind of wrong kind of action upon, just purity, consecration, get ready. They purified themselves and so even now it's just stay that way. Verse 16, on the morning of the third day there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast so that all the people in the camp trembled. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God and they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln, and the whole mountain trembled greatly. So here's God speaking to Moses. He says, go down, get these people consecrated, get them cleaned. Make sure that there's the, 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 the purification that takes place. But put a barrier around the mountain. I don't want anyone stepping Onto the base of that mountain. Just stay. Just make sure no one goes there. Okay. Because this is very very important. Because if they do. They will surely die. Because of. Again. We're going to see. The holiness of God. That will be explained a little bit. More in a moment. And so we have this dramatic scene. I would love to see. The recreation of this. Like done in modern day. I don't think anything would come close to what. The drama. And to what is actually going on. Here. At this time. Now. I'm sure that most of you here have experienced a thunderstorm in your life. One or two of them. And, and, you know, perhaps it was one that, you know, I mean, a crack of thunder that just literally, I mean, just scared you to, to you know, uh, almost out of your skin. I, I mean, here in British Columbia, we've been here for, for six years and, you know, or almost six years. But you still, you just don't get the, the thunderstorms like you get on the prairies, and on the prairies, you get some pretty nasty, and maybe there's just no protection there uh, for you. And, and I remember this was before we had kids. We had some friends that were visiting, and we were driving um, towards our house in the town that we were living. And there was this thunderstorm. And so we went and we watched the storm a little bit, but then it seemed to kind of miss our town. And, and uh, so we, we came in from out of the country, and as we were coming into town there was this flash of lightning that was so blinding and like kaboom was the thunder like instantaneously. You knew it just struck somewhere very nearby. Well, the funny thing is we have this other husband and wife, these friends of us, uh, friends of ours in the vehicle with us. And as the lightning flashed, the thunder pounded and then just like matter of just instant reaction, this guy let out this super loud expletive. And I mean, and 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 followed up by that was his wife yelling his name because he yelled out this expletive. I mean... I didn't know to be scared out of my skin or just laugh myself to death. It was just like, you know what, lightning, ah! you know, clap of thunder, you know, just terrifying. But then this guy screaming in the vehicle, this loud expletive, and then his wife yelling his name. I mean, it was hilarious. I still, when I think about it, I just can't help but maybe have to be there. But it was just one of those amazing experiences that um, she was so embarrassed and, and, and I just, I, I mean, I, I almost couldn't even drive home afterwards. I was so scared and so happy all at the same time. You know, it was just this delight, and you know, uh, whatever that, that went on. So, anyways, I don't know. You probably all have you know some kind of a thunder lightning story where you know it, it just happened. Whatever you've experienced when it comes to a display of of of, of thunder or or lightning or, or or of you know just God's creation, it wouldn't even compare to what is going on here at Mount Sinai here on this day. Thunder, lightning, smoke, a trumpet blast that caused the mountain to tremble. The mountain itself was trembling. The people were trembling, but the mountain it even says God's creation was trembling. You see folks, what we are seeing here in this display is the power of God, but it is all wrapped in the holiness of God. And one of the fundamental attributes, I believe the most fundamental attribute of God is his holiness. Holiness it's at the very core, at the very heart of God. The center of of the being of who God is. He is holy. We see His his holiness as the only attribute that is elevated to the third degree. We see in Isaiah 6, again in Revelation 4. Holy, holy, holy is our God. Holy means separate. Sinless. Pure. Pure. You see, God's, God's different than us. We try to bring God down to, to our level, but he, he's so different. He's, he's out of this world. He's, another word to describe it would be his transcendence. That's a word which means beyond the normal, beyond physical limits. He goes beyond space and time. His power is matchless. It's supreme. We can't even come close to understanding this power of God with our finite minds. We just can't. We can't understand the purity of God, the transcendence of God. I mean, we get maybe our minds blown a little bit on this when we study creation, when you, you look at the stars and, and you do some examination about how many stars are out there, how many galaxies are out there, and, and the enormity of the, the solar system and, and, and the universe, it, it's just mind-blowing. And God's in it all. He created it all. The thing that's even mind-blowing is that God's Word even tells us that he, He's the creator, the sustainer of our universe, and He even knows everything so detailed, He even knows how many hairs are on your head. For some of you, that's not a hard counting for Him. For, for others, you know, it's a little more work, you know. And, I mean, He, he just has it down to the detail, I mean, creation is an incredible way. In January, my wife and I, we were able to go to a, a um, harvest senior pastors and, and wives retreat in Phoenix. And we've never been to the Grand Canyon. So at the end of the retreat, we tacked on a few extra days to go to the Grand Canyon. And so we began our trip from Phoenix to the Grand Canyon. And I'm telling you, it was boring. It was awful. I mean, this was it. I mean, th- there was, like, every once in a while, this little molehill of a mountain. I mean, if they want to talk real mountains, come to, come, come to British Columbia, come to Alberta. You'll see some, some decent mountains. And, and, and we're driving along, and, and there's tumbleweed, and it's just, we had never been there. We heard it's amazing. You'll be wowed. And, and by the time we get there, because we got a little lost, my fault, and, and so we had to take the, the scenic way that took longer, and, and, and it, was, it was boring. And by the time we are getting close and we paid our $30 U.S. to to go see this Grand Canyon, I mean, I'm in a bit of a mood and I'm thinking, you know, this isn't even all that great. Like, what's what's the big... It better be amazing for this $30 U.S. for this drive, for this detour, for this frustration, and for this boring trip. It's like, I mean, I'd rather drive in Saskatchewan than drive, you know, than this, you know. And, And then all of a sudden, we saw it. And just, I mean... Pictures don't even properly describe, I don't know, if you've, if you've never been there, I mean, you can see the pictures, but when you get there, I mean, when we saw it, it was, like, I was speechless, and as you know, that's pretty, pretty miraculous right there, you know, and, and just in awe. And we couldn't take enough pictures and, and continued. It was super windy. It wasn't a great day, but we were just in awe. And, and I, I would stand there on some of these ledges and, you know, um, didn't get too close, but close enough, I guess, where Charlotte's like, you be careful, it's windy. You know, I'm like, I know, I don't want to lose my phone, you know. And, 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 uh, you know and, and as we were there, it was just in awe that here in this boring part of Arizona where there is just tumbleweed and some cactus and rock and... That all of a sudden God got creative when he created our world. And just so amazing. And you're left in awe. That is maybe help you to understand the power, the glory, the majesty, the transcendence of our God. And so here on the mountain though, we are seeing a display of the ultimate attribute, God's holiness. And it's on display here. And we see in this passage how God puts this distance between himself and the people. Not because he hated them. Not because he's angry and mean. It was because his purity. He's so pure that anything in his presence. It's kind of like, you know what? If if you have a match and you have some gasoline, what's going to happen? You get that close. Kaboom. Like, it's just within the nature of the match. That is lit and the open flame and gasoline to go in the same way, in a more glorious and powerful way, is the holiness of God when it comes to our sin. He is so holy, we can't even fully comprehend his holiness. And so God says, I want to speak to the people. I want to speak to them. I want to be able for them to hear my voice because I love them and these are people I've set free and I want them to hear me and I want them to hear these laws. I want them to hear who I am. And he says, just don't, just no one touch them out. And if they do, kill them, but don't even touch them because if, if you touch them, then you, that person who touches them has also been made, need to take, need to kill that person, either stone them or or use a bow and arrow. And so we see in this passage the holiness of God, his power, His, his, his and yet in this we see his love for, for relationship. And, and we see that God did make a special exemption for, for Moses and Aaron as he shielded them in some way that they were able to go up into the mountain. He was able to, to shield them from the full force of, of his holiness, but he told the rest of the people, stand back. Now, when you look at the Old Testament, you can virtually see the holiness of God on, on, in throughout almost every chapter. Everything ties into the holiness of God in just, just a, a beautiful way, but in a very incredible way. And, and so, in many ways, with that holiness, we almost mistake that for a harshness, for an angry God. I mean, you read in Genesis chapter 4 when Adam and Eve fell in the garden. I mean, it was just, they just ate, I mean, something they, they weren't supposed to, and that changed everything. Or, or in Genesis 19, when, when Lot's wife turns her back and looks at the city that she was supposed to flee from, and not, she wasn't supposed to take a glance. They were warned, don't take a glance. And as she's running away, she takes and turns, and she looks at the city, and she turns into a pillar of salt. That's Genesis 19. In in Leviticus 10, we see the sons of Aaron. They go into the temple. They are the priests. And and they go in and they offer a strange fire. We don't even fully know what it is. But it was an offering that was not acceptable to God. And they're killed. God seems kind of angry. He seems ticked off. Numbers 15. A man is collecting sticks on the Sabbath. Which went against the law of God. And they stone him. There are at least 20 crimes or sins... In the Old Testament, that people could be stoned for in accordance to the Old Testament law. Listen to, to what some of them are cursing your parents, murder, kidnapping, magic or old cult practices, unlawful divorce, adultery, homosexuality, incest. For all of these things, God says, kill the offender, they are to be put to death. And one might say, oh, God is angry. The God of the Old Testament is angry. I'm so glad that the God of the New Testament, that, 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 that he's different. He's, he's more loving. He's gracious. He, he's not this angry kind of God. Malachi chapter 3, verse 6, reminds us that God does not change. Our God has not changed. And in the New Testament, we see some of the same wrath. We see In Acts chapter 5, we see the story of Ananias and Sapphira who exaggerated when it came offering time in church. They exaggerated on on how much they gave, how much they received for some land and and what they put in the offering. And God strikes them dead. In every situation, we see that these people, they knew what they were doing, but they willfully decided. They, They knew what God's law was. They knew what the standard was, or they should have known. And they turned their backs and and figured they could either get away with it. They could take the gamble. They just didn't understand the severity of their actions. You see, in Habakkuk 1.13, it tells us God is so pure that he can't even look upon evil. God is so holy that if a human being with sin entered into his presence, they would just immediately die. Just like in the same way that, that, that that open flame and gasoline just would ignite Within being in, in proximity to one another in the same way that happens when it comes to sinfulness. Because God is just that holy and that pure. Folks, you need to understand God hasn't changed his mind about sin. Sin is a serious thing. But we say, but people are getting by. I mean, if, if God was striking down people today, like, like in the Old Testament and all of that, who, who of us would even be left? I mean, you wouldn't have any of these crazy television shows that seem to highlight the sinfulness of, uh, of people and and. How many of us would be alive? You see, folks, this is God's grace. God hasn't changed. You see, God doesn't want anyone to perish. He wants all to come to repentance. They all, he wants all to have relationship with him. And so he calls out to them. He preserves our lives. He, he gives us opportunity to respond to the truth of the gospel. But folks, we must understand the seriousness of sin. How sin is so serious. And, and, and you might even want to write this down. If you kind of think all those Genesis 19, Leviticus 10, Numbers, Numbers 15, Acts 5. These verses are, are, are pretty powerful reminders to us. We have to be remembered, reminded that all sin is capital punishment to God. It all is. The Bible says we were dead in our trespasses and sin. The soul that sins is the soul that dies. God is holy and he's not changed his mind about sin, not one little bit. He's not more tolerable today than he was in Old Testament times. And so here at Mount Sinai, we see God's holiness, we see his transcendence. Next we see that the Ten Commandments reveal the sinfulness of man. Basically, the rest of the Old Testament, we see the total inability for men, for women, for families to meet God's standards. They have sacrifices, there's offerings, there's all of these regulations, and it's all for them to be able to maintain, to have a right standing with God. And they can't do it. The law can't do it. In Exodus 19, verse 8, even when, when Moses is getting them ready and, and said, hey, God wants, God wants to speak. He has some important things for us to say. I love what they say in verse 8. Hey, Whatever God tells us to do, we'll do it. Sure, no problem. If God wants us to do something, we'll do it. They had no clue, I mean, how fickle they were. I mean, Moses and Aaron continue up in the mountain, and, and, uh, and as God is, is giving them the full law, and, and what ends up happening, they get bored. They're like, is he ever going to come back down? Like, come on, come on, let's have a dance party, come on. We, we, we need something to dance around, you know, and so, hey, take off your jewelry, take all of this. What did he just say, just, you know, just, just prior to that, you shall have no other gods before me? And, and, and they have this golden calf that they make, you know, and it's just like, what are you doing? How fickle. We can try so hard. Have you ever been like that in life? You're like, okay, I never want to do this again. I never want to fall into this area. I never want to look at porn. I don't ever want to lie again. I don't want to cheat again. I don't want to get angry. And, you know, sometimes there is a righteous anger, but my anger often isn't righteous. I, I don't want to get angry. And we say, I'll never do this again, and I don't want to do it. And, and like 10 minutes later, we're back doing it. Or 10 hours later, or whatever it might be. You see, this all comes down to our heart. It's about our heart. In, in the 1970s, I was just barely born. And uh, there was a revival in Saskatchewan, in the prairies, that, that began there. Just one where people were meeting with God. It was just a genuine work of God that spread. I mean, even there were churches in Kelowna experienced the work of God in, in a powerful way from that, that kind of spread out. And, and, and it was through the preaching of the word, through prayer, through through just people getting right with the Lord and I read about a pastor just recently from that just as I was looking over just some of the documents from that revival of what God did. A pastor was in his office and all of a sudden he received a phone call from a man from his church, one of his leaders in the church, frantic, crying. He could barely even talk and he, and he says, Pastor, Pastor, you have to come over. You have to come over. You have to come. He didn't even, couldn't even get the words out as far as what was going on and so the pastor, I mean when you get a call like that, you assume the worst, right? Okay, this guy, I mean someone's died. There's been an accident, something serious serious is going on and so as the pastor rushes over to his house and this man is in tears he's a frantic wreck and he says pastor i was sitting in my office and he says i was sitting in my office at work as i normally do and god just showed me what was really in my heart he says it was like looking into the very pit of hell now this man was not a wicked man it would seem he was a good man he was involved in church he was a leader But he had an insurance claim a number of years before that and he lied on on that claim in order to get more money than what he was entitled to. And from that, God just convicted them there that day and he saw a picture of his heart and he said it was like looking into the very pit of hell. This is what my sin has caused. This is what it is all about. And that man repented before God. And he made things right with the insurance company, and he knew the power and the blessing of God in his life in a way that he he had been devoid of that because he was living in these areas of disobedience towards God. It's not a big deal, is it? I mean, like, really? Like, we all do it. We all sin. I mean, it's not a big deal. I I mean, it's not a big deal if you don't get caught, right? Or... It's not a big deal if, you know, if your intentions are, are good. Or it's not, it's not a big deal as long as you are, are trying hard to be good and, and, and sin isn't that bad then. And, or sin isn't a big deal as long as, you know, as long as I'm not as bad as that person. Because, you know, that person, you know, I mean, at least I'm not that bad. Or, or sin isn't that big of a deal, so says our culture. You're right, sin isn't a big deal. We can justify it, we can live with it, but we will experience no joy, no power, no presence, no peace of God in our lives. Sin becomes a big deal when we understand the holiness of God. And we see ourselves and we see our sin and it is like then looking into the very pit of hell. Isaiah, in Isaiah chapter 6, I mean he was a godly man, one of the few godly men in the nation. And he was warning the people, he was a prophet for God, he was working for God, but he gets a glimpse of Of the glory of God. And what does he say? Woe am I. For I am a man of unclean lips. He sees his sin. Even though he's a good man. He sees he still doesn't measure up. And no matter how hard you try. How hard I try. How hard the best loving gracious. You just know some people on this earth. I mean they're not even religious. And they are nice. You ever meet some people like like they're nicer than you. Right? Right? And no matter how good and how hard you try, in face of the holiness of God, we fall short. And so the holiness of God reveals that, that we're sinful. That, whoa, am I. I'm unclean. And we see ourselves in this way. And, and that's bad news. That's terrible. Sin is serious. Especially when we understand and see the holiness of God. But then fourth thing we see here is the law reveals my need for grace. Such a great chasm exists between God his holiness and you and I in our sinfulness. It is a is a huge chasm. And how is that chasm how is it bridged? There is one way that God made by which he could maintain his justice As well as his holiness. And still welcome sinners into his family. There's only one way. And he gave his son. So that chasm of his holiness. And his power. And his glory. And you and I. In our sinfulness. In our struggle. In the things we do. That we don't want to do. But we keep doing. And because of that, we are damned, separated from God, apart from Him. And that chasm has been filled, has been bridged through Jesus Christ. If it wasn't for Christ, we'd all have to absorb the fire of the wrath of God upon ourselves. God demands perfection. Good luck even going the next hour, living in perfection. I mean, there are areas in our lives of sinfulness that we're not even aware of. It's kind of like, you know, the iceberg effect. You know, you see this iceberg, and like, whoa, look at the huge, and they say, how much bigger is the iceberg? And we just see the tip of our sin. I mean, there's so much more to it than we can even fully understand in light of the holiness of God. And God demands perfection. And folks, the gospel provides it. Jesus provides it. And so whoever puts their trust in Jesus whoever runs to Jesus we are saved. God provides this means that we can be forgiven. And today God stands and he says, "Welcome, welcome, welcome. Come to me. Receive my son, the perfect sacrifice." 2 Corinthians chapter 5 verse 12 says, "For our sake God made him Being Jesus, to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That is good news. That is the gospel. Run to Jesus. We run to him and live in his power and his fullness. Refuse it. Refuse Jesus and you will be damned forever. That's what God's word declares to us. Jesus didn't die as a simple demonstration of his love. That's all that gets promoted oftentimes in our churches today. He loves you. He died for you. That's a good truth, but it's only a partial truth. God's, the truth is, is that God's judgment is what we deserve and that fell on Jesus. He died so that we could receive that right standing before God that we could never obtain of ourselves. And that is why we worship him. That is why we praise him. That is why we follow him and rearrange our lives for him. That's why Jesus said, if you love me, if you love what I've done, you're going to obey my commandments. These commandments that we'll get into, what we see in God's word, they're not to be a burden. They are a joy. Are they hard? You better believe it because we're going to fight against it, right? We, we, we still have have struggles and temptation. But we can stand strong because the one who wrote the law, who fulfilled the law, now indwells you and I and helps us to keep the law. Because in our power and our strength, we can't. Jesus, by his Holy Spirit, indwells his children. You see, there's a great danger of what can happen. In churches today, and we see this probably for the last 20, 30 years, especially in the North American church, especially, it's hit hard. We can have many people sitting in church Sunday after Sunday who are unsaved churchgoers, who are unsaved, you could even say, evangelicals. Christ gets presented as the answer to their lives. The way to live your best life now. The way to reach your best potential. While we were on vacation recently, I was watched, tuned into a, a television station from the States. And it was a, a church that was called Potential Church. It was all about reaching your own personal potential. That's not why Christ died. He died for you and for I to receive the holiness of God. The, understand His glory, His power, His victory that's available. And we've just brought it down to our best life now. And so, it's not a social gospel. Jesus, church, religion isn't just some add-on to make your life better. In so many of our churches today, there's no repentance. There's no need for, for the call towards obedience to the word of God or holiness that we are to be pursuing. That's only half the gospel. You see, church... Religion, faith, Jesus, what we're talking about here isn't simply like, you know, having a Costco card. I mean, how many of you have a Costco card? Yeah, you have Costco card. Yeah, you know, it's a good benefit to have a Costco card. Great thing. You get some good savings. I mean, you get samples and cheap. I mean, $1.99 hot dog and, and, and pop. I mean, just doesn't get any better than that, right? I mean, it's just such a good place. I mean, even truth be known, back in December, my daughter was feeling pretty wonky in, in Costco. Kind of had a, not quite a fainting moment, but wasn't feeling that good. And I just kind of left her with one of the Costco workers and I went around and got a few more samples. while well, you know, I mean, she was, you know, recovering. You know, I mean, there's some benefits. in in the whole Costco thing, right? And and, and some of it, that's the way we treat church. That's the way we treat our faith. There's some benefits in this. There's some fire insurance kind of, you know, keeps me from the fires of hell. And and it's like the gospel is more than just I was in trouble or life was hard or or he provides a better option or a good option. He, he, He provides some future eternal security for me. The gospel declares I was so bad, I was so lost and Christ offers to forgive me, to save me, to set me free. And in Hebrews chapter 12, we won't take time to read that today. But here we see, we see the writer of Hebrews referring to what we just read in, in, in Exodus 19. And he's talking to Mount Sinai and how there was trembling. But he says, we come to a new mountain. We come to the, the hill called Mount Calvary. We run to Jesus, the mediator. We come to Jesus for life. We run to him in repentance, seeking his forgiveness in our lives. We come to Mount Sinai, which was, we see Mount Sinai as a mountain of doom. And God is a consuming fire, but but we can run to Calvary. This is the hill that Jesus died on. And we see the consuming love of God. It's at the cross where he endured the thunder of God's judgment and the lightning wrath for our sin. And when Jesus died, the earth shook. There was an earthquake. And there was darkness over the land. You see this scene virtually recreated in the life of Jesus. And when he yelled with the same sound as a trumpet, it is finished. He says the chasm between sinful men and God has been bridged. The chasm has been bridged. And that is why following the commands of God. That's why Jesus, when he said, if you obey me, you're going to keep my commands. It becomes a joy and an honor and a desire in our heart not to make our lives miserable and a bunch of rules. And as we grasp the holiness, the transcendence of God, and we see ourselves even today As I see myself, the fear of man in my life. The fear that I battle, the struggles that I have. I look and I say, woe is me for I am a sinful man. A man of unclean lips. And I can also say like Isaiah and I live amongst a people that are unclean. My family. You folks. Our society. But when we get our eyes And we grasp the, the holiness and the beauty of our God. And we see what Christ has done. Our response of worship. This series will increase the worship that we have in our heart towards God. Because we see in a greater way his love for us. It increases our desire to be repenting people. Making things right. It impacts our lives. We sing, my Jesus, I love thee. I know thou art mine. We praise him. Have you committed your life to Jesus today.